If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking, we started last week, um, a new section here. We're going to be looking at verses, we're going to look pretty much at verse 18 uh, today, but we're going to start, just to catch the context, in verse 17. And so, Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. Friends, listen, this is the word of Christ. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This is Christ's word. Last week, like I said, we began a series, and we've seen that what Jesus has been doing in the Sermon on the Mount is that he's restoring Judaism to its original factory settings. You know, it was an operating system that had become corrupt because of the bad acts that had been installed onto the Judaism by the leadership of, of Jesus' day. And as Jesus reboots Judaism, for us, he's also rebooting religion in general because we constantly put things on top of a relationship with Jesus, things that are not meant to be there. And so Jesus is helping us to reboot. He's cleaning us up so that we can have a relationship. We can understand what it means to have a relationship with him, um, and then also what it means to follow him. And in verse 17, Jesus, uh, he begins a series of statements designed to help us know that what, he's not doing away with the Old Testament. Okay, if you think about your Bible, that when Jesus was walking the earth, this much of it had already been written. Okay? And Jesus is trying to make it really clear in these verses that he hasn't come to do away with this. Okay? He hasn't come to abolish, he says in verse 17, but he has come to fulfill. Right? I haven't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he goes on to share with us more specifics on how Jesus relates to the Old Testament. Okay? And so in verse 18, we're going to see one point. Okay, there is one point that Jesus wants us to take from verse 18, and here it is. God's word lasts as long as God's world. Okay, God's word lasts as long as God's world. That's what Jesus wants us to take away from his words. And so there's really four phrases that Jesus mentions here. We're just going to look at them and walk through this verse. It starts in verse 18 with him saying, For truly I say to you. For truly I say to you. What Jesus is saying here is, here is what I think. Okay, you want to know what my opinion is on the Old Testament? You want to know what my opinion is on the Bible? I'm going to give it to you. Okay, and Jesus begins, I mean, everything that he says is true, right? He's, he's God in the flesh. Everything he says is true, and yet Jesus feels compelled to start this phrase by saying truly. By using this word truly. Actually, the, the word truly is the, is the Greek word amen. Okay, and in the older translations, um, sometimes it's translated verily, verily I say to you. Sometimes it's translated amen, amen I say to you. And, and this is, Jesus does this over 30 times in Matthew to, to underscore or to put emphasis on a particular point as something that's really important. And what he's doing here is he's making a promise. He's saying, I'm really serious about this. Okay, you can take this to the bank. 
Um, one scholar said, the word truly, uh, and truly I say to you, this is Jesus' own signature. No other teacher is known to have used it. That's kind of interesting. This is a signature move for Jesus to say, truly I say to you. And, uh, and what Jesus is saying is very similar to the phrase that's in the Old Testament throughout, where it says, where the prophets would come and say, thus saith the Lord. Right? Thus says the Lord. Hundreds of times in the Old Testament. It's interesting. Jesus takes a similar tack and he says, truly I say to you. It's interesting. The Lord continues to speak in the first person, in Jesus. And so what we're getting is Jesus' direct thoughts and opinions. Okay, and so Jesus tells us exactly what he thinks about the Bible. His relationship with the Old Testament is not to abolish it, but it's to fulfill it. And I just want to make the point with this phrase that if this is Jesus' view, it's good enough for me. Okay? If this is how Jesus feels about the Bible, then this is how I feel about the Bible. Okay, now, there are objections that people make to the Bible. We'll talk about those. Those can be dealt with. But I just think it's important for us to recognize, as people who follow Jesus, we can accept his views on the Bible. Okay, Jesus is not going to do away with the Bible. He came to fulfill the Bible. And if that's how he feels, that's how I feel. And we're going to talk about the implications of what that means for us today. And so the, the, you know, kind of the center point that Jesus makes in verse 18, he says, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law. Okay? Not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law. And so we have here, and just thinking about this, picture this in your head, uh, an iota and a dot. I just want to give you a, a visual so that you can set it in your mind. An iota, um, this is a reference to a Hebrew letter. Okay, Hebrew has 22 letters in its alphabet. And uh, the iota is the, is the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew word yod, or the Hebrew letter yod, yod. And what it is, it looks like an apostrophe. And so if you don't know Hebrew, you might think that the Hebrew language had lots of conjunctions. Okay, because you'd read a word, and you'd find this letter yod, and it looks just like an apostrophe. Okay, and so if you don't know that that's a letter, you might think it's a conjunction, it's a, or a contraction. Did I say conjunction? It's a contraction. So, the, the iota, this is a, a reference, it's the smallest Hebrew letter in the alphabet. Okay, and the dot, the dot, this is, it's a little stroke of the pen that you would make to some Hebrew letters. Okay, and so it's kind of like crossing a T or dotting an I. That's kind of the issue here. And so what Jesus is saying is, he's saying, truly, I say to you, not the smallest letter from the law will pass away. Not the smallest stroke that creates a letter from the law will pass away. Okay, he's saying that God's word, that the Bible is going to last as long as God's world. Now, if you've read any of the Bible, you might be objecting here in your mind, right? How can Jesus say this? Because if you've read any of the Old Testament, you'll realize there's stuff in the Old Testament that we don't do anymore. Right? There's all kinds of things that, I mean, animal sacrifices. Right? Well, actually, okay, I wasn't going to tell you this, but through that private office door, there's an altar. And that's where we do all the animal sacrifices. 
No. We don't do animal sacrifices anymore. So how can Jesus say, not a, not a letter or even the stroke of a pen will, be, will, be, will pass away? Or think about the food restrictions. There were clean and unclean animals. Incredibly detailed descriptions of what you were allowed to eat and what you weren't allowed to eat in the Old Testament. Stuff that had, if the animal chewed the cud, or if it had a split hoof, if it had one or the other, then it was unclean. If it had them both, it was clean. If it had neither, it was clean. Right? And it's all this crazy detail. Right? Well, we don't talk about that anymore. Hasn't that passed away? Or you think about the purity rituals. Right? You read the book of Leviticus and go, oh my goodness. If this happens to you, you'll be clouded unclean and you need to, to, to cleanse yourself and bathe with water and sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be unclean until morning. If you do this, you're unclean and you'll need to bathe in pure water, sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be unclean until evening. It's like this rhythm thing, like chapters and chapters and chapters full of ritual purification ceremonies that were part of the daily life of, what it meant, of, of, of Israelites. And yet, we don't even have holy water at the door. You know, that you're, you know, like the Roman Catholics do, right? What gives, right? You think about, I mean, even the day of worship. It's like, hello, people, do you realize that we don't worship on the same day anymore? Right? In the Old Testament, it was the seventh day. Now it's the first day. How can you possibly claim that you believe Jesus' view of the Bible, that not the smallest letter or the stroke of a pen will pass away? if you don't do everything in the Old Testament. Right? Anybody else feel this way? Anybody else confused about this? Anybody else had this thrown in your face from people that think the Bible's irrelevant and how can you, I mean, you totally pick and choose. You're totally arbitrary. You just don't want to do sacrifices. That's why you don't do them. You'll get arrested if you do them. That's why you don't do them. You've completely capitulated. You don't really have faith. Right? Because if the government says you shouldn't do it, then you don't do it. That's why. These are real issues. This week, this last week, I've had conversations with people who have objections to the Bible because of the stuff in there, and it seems so arbitrary how the church handles these things. Right? There's real teeth in this. How can Jesus say this, knowing that the church is not going to do all the things that are written in the Old Testament? Here's the answer. Okay, here's the answer. The answer comes in the definition of the word law. Okay? Jesus says in verse 18 that not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay? You need to understand that the word law, if you look it up in a Hebrew lexicon, now when we think about the word law, we think about laws. Right? We think about particular do's and don'ts. Uh, don't drive faster than the speed limit. Don't jaywalk. Don't um, steal. Don't, you know, I mean, we have laws in our land that come from the government. And when we think about the word law, that's what comes to our mind. That is not what was in the mind of Jesus when he said this. Do you know what the word law means? The word law means instruction. The word law means instruction. Okay, so it's not the do's and the don'ts. And every place, just about every place, it's used in the Old Testament. It means instruction. 
Okay? It means instruction. So Psalm 19 is a really good way for you to get a clear uh, picture of how the Bible uses the term law. Okay? Especially the Old Testament. It says this. We read this last week, actually. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Okay, so you heard like five or six different ways of describing stuff that comes from God, okay? The way that Hebrew, the, the way that the Hebrew works, the definition of the word law, the word law is the overarching banner, okay? It means instruction, okay? And Psalm 19 says the instruction of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. And then underneath that banner, there are different things that comprise the instruction of the Lord, okay? There are testimonies. There are precepts. There are commandments, Okay, those are the do's, the don'ts, and there are, there's the fear of the Lord, there's also the rules of the Lord. So those five things lie underneath the banner of the instruction of the Lord. And as you think about the Old Testament with this lens, looking through, oh, you'll see, yeah, yeah, you're right, under the rubric of the instruction of the Lord, parts of the Old Testament are just testimonies. Testimonies of God, testimonies of his people, testimonies of, of different things that go on. There are precepts. There are commandments. There, are, there is the fear of the Lord, which means respect and awe of the Lord. And there are rules. And so this word law, it's referring to the instruction of the Lord. Okay? And so the instruction of God contains commandments, you know, which is our normal way of thinking about law. But those commandments are part of the overall instruction of the Lord. And what Jesus is saying here in this verse, in verse 18, Jesus is saying the instruction will never pass away. Okay? The instruction will never pass away. The commands um, that the church doesn't follow today, these commands were part of God's instruction to his people. So let's think about this, right? The animal sacrifices. The animal sacrifices, there were lots of descriptions for how animal sacrifices ought to be done, when they ought to be done, which animals, what parts of the animals, what do you do with the parts of the animals, really, really detailed instruction about the sacrifices. But those sacrifices were designed to instruct God's people about certain things. God gave the animal sacrificial system to instruct his people for instance, that there is a penalty for sin. The animal sacrificial system was designed to instruct God's people that God is holy. He is perfect in every way. He has to punish wrongdoing, and so there's a penalty for sin. <clears throat> you think about the dietary instructions, um, the dietary instructions were designed to keep God's people actually separate from the rest of the nations that were around them. Okay, These were the instructions that God gave to his people. But when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes, God's instructions become fuller and clearer. Okay, We saw last week that Jesus came to bring God's word to life. Okay, to make it come alive. And so, thinking about the sacrifices, 
the sacrifices were designed to teach people that God is holy and to teach people that there's a penalty for sin. But Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sin. So when Jesus comes and offers the ultimate payment for all of the sins of the world, and he's called that, right? At the very beginning of his ministry, John the Baptist sees him in John 1, 29. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? And so Jesus came. All of those sacrifices, they all looked forward the repeated nature of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the repeated nature of them showed us that they were not actually doing the job. Because you had to keep doing them over and over and over again. And I think that was also part of God's instruction. God was instructing his people, look, this is what you need to do. This is the penalty that the wages of sin is death. And you ought to, in your heart, be longing for a day when you don't have to do these sacrifices anymore. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, when Jesus shows up and offers himself as a sacrifice, God looks at the sacrificial system and says, enough. Enough. God told the folks in the Old Testament, do, 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 when it came to animal sacrifices. And when Jesus came, when Jesus offered himself, God said, done. Done. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, it is finished. I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to bring it to life. another way to illustrate this for you. I've got um, a picture here that I want to show you. Anybody know what this is? Ultrasound. Nice. <clears throat> this is Ryan. Um, this is his head over here. This is his nose and his lips. I think this is his elbow. rest of his body. Um, what kind of people will show you the picture of their baby in the womb? This isn't an insult. <laughs> Excited, parents. Excited parents who, who what? Who maybe first time? Excited parents who haven't had the baby yet. Right? When was the last time I looked at this picture? I don't even know. I'm not even sure if I saw this picture, because by the fourth time around, you're like, oh, ultrasound, great, that's cool. No, so, Sunil, let's see the next slide. This is Ryan, right? I mean, this is Ryan when he was born. Like, this is what he looks like. When you have this, you don't need the ultrasound picture anymore. Does that make sense? It became like really silly for us to pull out the ultrasound picture when Ryan's lying there in the crib. You know, if I'm going to pull out, oh, hey, let me show you a picture of my son who's just born. <laughs> People look at me like, where's the flesh and the blood, right? That's just the bones on the ultrasound. And even now, Ryan is six. He's six and a half. 
I mean, even that picture, I mean, you know, sentimental, it's, it look, you know, maybe one, it's probably been, I literally had to dish, I had to drag these albums out, I was trying to find, okay, do we even have an ultrasound picture anymore? I remember it, but I haven't seen it for years, and, uh, but now I've got Ryan, and even the pictures, right, even the pictures themselves, like, I've got Ryan, I can go talk to him, I can hold him, I can look at him, you know, and this is what Jesus means when he says, I haven't come to abolish because, honestly, the ultrasound picture was great at the time it was done. It was great. It actually taught us about Ryan. It taught us a little bit about what he was going to be like. It made sure that there were things that were healthy about him, right? There, were, there was a purpose for it. But when the reality comes, the ultrasound picture becomes, it just fades into the, into the back, okay? And there might be times where you need to go back and dig it out, maybe not with the ultrasound picture, but surely with the Old Testament, um, but what Jesus is saying here, he's saying the instruction of the Lord will never pass away. And all of the things that were done in the Old Testament that aren't done now in the New Testament church, all of those things, there's a reason. The things that no longer continue, what happens is the whole Old Testament passes through Jesus. He's like a prism. And as the Old Testament passes through him, we find that the things that pointed forward to Jesus, once he's come, we don't need those things anymore because we have him. Because we have him. And so there's a lot that could be said here, a lot more. Um, if you have particular questions about things that you read in the Old Testament, just ask. Bring it up. You can ask me, you can ask other folks, ask your community groups. Um, there's really good reasons, um, and there's great reason, actually, for us, even more so than an ultrasound picture. This is where the analogy breaks down, because reading the Old Testament can actually teach us more about Jesus. You can see who he is and what he's going to be like and what he's going to do when you find all the things that stopped when he shows up, okay? Because you learn more about who he is, and you learn more about the significance of his work on the cross and the resurrection as our prophet, our priest, as our king, I mean, the whole Old Testament is filled with these, I mean, it's almost like this entire album of ultrasound pictures that show you different parts of what Jesus will be and what he'll do for us when he shows up. And sometimes you have to read it in the Old Testament to appreciate it about Jesus in the New. Okay, so this is far from being a reason to not read the Old Testament. It actually drives us back. Now that we know what it's pointing to, it opens up the Old Testament to us so that we can read it and understand it. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, he agreed with what Jesus says about the Old Testament. He says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Um, it says, well, uh, verse 15. It says that the Old Testament is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. The scripture Paul's talking about is the Old Testament. This is what he had. That was his Bible, too, before he wrote the New Testament. And so Paul was saying that, yeah, all of scripture is inspired by God. It's literally the breath of God. God speaks, and his breath is inscripturated. We have God's words in the Bible. 
And so what this does, this produces stability, confidence, that you can read the Bible, um, that none of it is passing away. It's all relevant. And so another phrase Jesus uses here is he qualifies um, with two until statements. Okay? You see there at the beginning of verse 18, uh, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. Okay? Until heaven and earth pass away. This is where we get the title of the sermon, that God's word is going to last as long as God's world. Right? Until heaven and earth pass away. What this means is that God's teaching is relevant. His instruction is relevant. Think about it. If God created all things and God knew that uh, we had a problem and God knew that the world was broken and God wanted to teach us how to be a part of the healing solution to the world and what's broken in the world. Do you really think that he would have spoken his word and had it put together and you know, held on to by the church and done that in a way that wouldn't be relevant for all time? I mean, how dumb do you think God would be? I mean, just kind of simply, right? I mean, it's not like God doesn't know that culture is going to change. It's not like God doesn't know that life is going to be different and that different things will happen and that different philosophies and ways of approaching things and, 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 and things will come and they will go. God knew all that was going to happen. And he also inspired a word that would continue to speak and continue to be relevant until heaven and earth pass away. Think about um, fads, right? When I think about Jesus' words, I think about the opposite of what Jesus is saying. I think about fads. You think about clothing in the 60s, right? Think about clothing in the 70s. Yeah, think about clothing in the 80s. Right? The only reason we think that what we wear now is normal is because we live today. Right? Stuff comes and goes. It's crazy. If you look at old car designs, you know, and stuff that I remember thinking, man, that's cool when that car came out. I look at it now and go, ugh. Like, sorry for that person. Um, sunglasses, right? I mean, remember Top Gun when it came out? Tom Cruise was just like the epitome of cool. Have you seen, have you seen lately the glasses that he wore? These super amazingly cool aviator glasses that everybody was wearing? They're like this. Only women are allowed to wear glasses that big nowadays. Crazy. Like, nobody would wear that anymore. Stuff comes and goes, and it's not just fashions and fads, but philosophies, right? Ideas, attacks on the Bible. They come and they go. They come and they go. There are... Um, there are arguments against Christianity. I mean, I, I think one of the biggest ones is, is historical reliability. You know, people think, you know, people that you know, people think that, that scholars have demonstrated that, that the Bible is unreliable, that historically it's inaccurate. Um, this is a book by Tim Keller called The Reason for God. And in this book, Tim does this amazing job dealing with the seven biggest questions that non-Christians ask Christianity, and, um, and he, he deals with them in really wonderful ways. 
um, because he demonstrates not only why people ask the questions and the legitimate reasons why you'd ask questions like this, but he also shows that most of the attacks against Christianity are based on faith. <laughs> that the people that want to accuse us of accepting things on blind faith have themselves accepted so much on blind faith. Um, and so... This is interesting. So in the area of historical reliability, and I've actually personally experienced the same thing. I went to school at UCLA, and I can remember days where I got home to my dorm, and I didn't know which way was up, because somebody had shared an argument uh, of a historical refabrication about the church, and how you know, Constantine in 325 was the person who finally decided what books were going to be in the Bible and had a sword while he was doing it to like kill anybody that disagreed with him. I mean, there's all these arguments that are made, um, and they rocked my faith. And what's interesting is that the more evidence that I looked at, the more actually hard evidence that I asked for, and you know, um, the, <laughs> the more the arguments against Christianity actually began to crumble. Now, it's one thing for me to say it, because who am I, but Tim Keller, right? This is what he says. So he's much more famous. He says this, As a student, I was initially shanked by this. How could all of those prominent scholars be wrong? Then, however, as I did my own first-hand research, I was surprised at how little evidence there actually was for these historical reconstructions. And he said, to my encouragement, the evidence for this older, skeptical view of the Bible has been crumbling steadily for the past 30 years, even as, even as it's been promoted by the popular media through books and movies such as The Da Vinci Code. Right? More and more real scholars recognize that the arguments against the historical reliability of the Bible are, are not valid. And then he brings up this woman, Anne Rice. Anne Rice, um, she was a famous author of an interview with a, with a vampire. Um, and uh, she was raised Catholic. She lost her faith in college. She married an atheist. Um, and then she got famous. She wrote a book. And then... She shocked the world, it says, when she, be, when she announced that she had returned to Christianity. Okay, why did she do it? Well, she says, she wrote a book called Christ the Lord out of Egypt. And in the afterword, this is what she wrote. She was amazed at how weak the arguments were against the historical Jesus. Some books were no more than assumptions piled on assumptions. Conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. The whole case for the non-divine Jesus who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified. That whole picture, which has floated around the liberal circles I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was not made. Not only was it not made, I discovered in this field some of the worst and most biased scholarship I'd ever read. And so when we think about the historical reliability of the Bible or of Jesus... Like, you have to recognize that oftentimes the people that promote these views that try to debunk Christianity, they are often assumptions upon assumptions upon assumptions. Um, they have as much faith. I think when I've done the study, when you do the study, it takes more faith to believe other views of Jesus um, than to believe the Jesus of the Scriptures. If you look at the evidence, if you actually look firsthand at the evidence. Um, the other main objection, and, and I feel compelled to talk about these objections because I think it's totally legitimate for somebody to say, look, I believe in Jesus. Jesus believed in the, in the Bible, so I believe in the Bible. 
I think that's totally legitimate. Um, I think that some people will criticize that view as, oh yeah, and here's the cup of Kool-Aid to go along with that. Okay? And so that's why I want to deal with some of these objections. Okay? I know sometimes it gets a little bit technical, but you need to know that there are answers for these things. Whether you pursue the answers firsthand or just know that they're there. Right? Knowing, like having this book on your shelf and being able to read it um, and know that the answers are there, that you could point other people to a book like this can be a really helpful tool just to help you know that it's not like we're huddled in the corner hoping that they don't find out what's really out there. Okay? And so historical reliability is an issue. I think the other one that's probably more pertinent to our day um, is that people say that the Bible is culturally regressive. It's culturally regressive, right? Yeah, don't you know that the Bible promotes slavery? I mean, how could you possibly devote your life to a book like that? Or women. You, okay, so you believe it's okay to subjugate women. And this is what people think about the Bible, that it was written at a time that's totally outmoded, it's totally outdated, it doesn't apply to today. How do you deal with that? Well, I would just say a couple things. First, um, just because the Bible has been used to promote great evil in the world doesn't necessarily mean it's the fault of the Bible. Okay? I think it's just important for us to admit that you don't have to be perfect to be a Christian um, and that not all Christians are perfect. Um, and some of us are, do a really bad job of following Jesus. Um, and when we do a bad job following Jesus, it's our fault, not his. And so don't lump the Bible in with the wrong interpretations of the Bible. So that's, I think that's a good place to start. Um, it's also good on the issue of slavery. Um, you need to know the Bible condemns kidnapping and human trafficking. Um, in 1 Timothy 1, 9 to 11, it says that kidnapping is wrong, and that was what slavery was in America, and it was wrong, to kidnap people in Africa and bring them over and, and enslave them. The Bible, is, the, the Bible would condemn that behavior. And in fact, it was Christians in Britain, right, William Wilberforce, that because of a biblical conviction about the scriptures, that he worked tirelessly to end slavery. Okay, it was actually a conviction in the truth of the Bible. It was an agreement with Jesus that promoted the end of slavery in the new world. Okay, not the other way around. Now again, I'm not saying that there weren't people that quoted the Bible to justify the slave trade, um, but it's, it's, it's not what the message of Jesus was. In terms of, um, of, of the subjugation of women, um, this is something, again, I mean, there's books that have been written on this stuff that you can chase down. Um, the Bible has always been, when the Old Testament was written, when the New Testament was written, the Bible has always been more honoring to women than any of the other cultures around it. The Old Testament gives rights to women that no other culture gave them. Most women didn't have any rights in culture, and yet the Bible gave them rights the Bible treated them as human beings. Um, in the New Testament, Jesus had women who were his disciples. That was a no-no. When you, when you see that Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, man, you didn't do that during that time. Jesus was being unbelievably culturally progressive 
Jesus was honoring women and saying they can be taught, they should be taught, they ought to be given theology and instruction, they ought to be able to learn like men do in ways that were not, that that didn't happen in other cultures. And so, even though Jesus' followers haven't always followed Jesus, um, the problem is with the followers, not with Jesus or with the Bible. Um, And this, incidentally, is a strong cry to all of us for why we all need to be reading the Bible, both Christians and non. Both Christians and non. Because if you don't read it, and you don't study it, if you don't devote yourself to it, you're going to be liable to all kinds of crazy interpretations. But when you read it, all, a lot of the time, what happens is that this view that, oh, there's all these views out there, and how can you ever decide? When you actually read the Bible for, you know, for yourself, in a lot of areas, it's not, it's not that difficult to understand. There are still some places that are really hard to understand, um, but, uh, but so this is why we all need to devote ourselves to it. Um, I think just as Jesus says, you know, till heaven and earth pass away, um, none of the law will pass away. What hit me this week was, you know, how long will the Bible be relevant? Well, Jesus is saying as long as the sun keeps coming up and going down. Okay? That's how long the Bible will be relevant. As long as the sun comes up in the morning and goes down at night. So when the sun comes up, when you wake up in the morning, you can thank God that you have the Bible and that it is a lamp under your feet and a light to your path. When the sun goes down and you go to sleep at night, you can thank God for the Bible and that it gives you rest in Jesus. That he has done it for you. The last phrase here that Jesus brings up is just the last phrase in the verse. He says, not not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Until all is accomplished. This is one of those phrases that makes the entire Bible unfold before your eyes. I don't have time to get into all of the things that can unfold before your eyes from this phrase. Um, but this is what I'm going to say. that what Jesus, Jesus is making the point that God has a purpose for the Bible. Okay? And that purpose will be accomplished. And if you can know what God's purpose is, then you can know how you should relate to the Bible. Okay? And so just a couple things. Just a, just a few things, and this is really a, a way of application. What is the purpose of the Bible for us? I think about um, first Romans 10, verses 14 to 17. And I'm just going to give you four quick purposes, okay, as we finish. Um, the first purpose of the Bible is that it's designed to help you have a relationship with Jesus. Okay, it's designed to teach you how to have a relationship with Jesus. Romans 10, 17 says... Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Okay? Hearing the Bible, hearing it read, reading it yourself, hearing it preached can help you to have faith. It actually grows your faith to hear the word of Christ. 
grows your faith, and it's designed to help you have a relationship with Jesus, and it's designed for your relationship with Jesus to grow. That's the first thing. The second thing is that um, the Bible is designed to help you grow, to help you to walk with Jesus more consistently. John 17, 17. Jesus says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To sanctify means to make holy, to help them grow, to, to, to mature their faith. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so the purpose of the Bible is to help you grow. Okay, it's to make you more like Jesus so that you can be his hands and feet, so you can be engaged in the world um, in a way that brings God's blessings. Um, third, the Bible's designed to help you fight against sin. Um, this is Psalm 119.11. I don't know why I'm looking these up. I guess I just want to show you the exercise of looking up verses because I've got these ones memorized. Right? Thy word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. God, I've taken your word and I've hidden it in my heart because when I do that, I don't sin against you. Because when the, when the temptation comes up, I remember your word, and it gives me power to resist temptation. So it helps us fight temptation. And then the fourth one that I'll give you today is um, John 8, 31 and 32, that God's word sets us free. So if you get caught in sin, God's word can set you free. John 8, Jesus says to, his, to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So God wants to set you free from anything that you're dealing with, from all of your struggles, from all of your sin, from the temptation. He wants you to experience his freedom, right? his power, his presence in your life. And as you devote yourself to his word, God becomes more and more real to you. The question that I'd like you to, um, to come to grips with, the most important decision I think you can make is to settle in your mind and in your life what the ultimate authority for you will be. Because that's what this is all about. It's ultimately about authority. You've got to decide for yourself what will be your ultimate authority. Will it be culture? Everybody's doing it, so I will too. Will it be tradition? This is the way we've always done it. Will your ultimate authority be reason? You know, this is, seemed logical to me. Or emotion, it just felt right. I mean, these are the options that are out there for us today. Jesus is inviting you to make his word the ultimate authority in your life. The thing that you should ask at any moment in the day, but when you make your decisions is, what does the Bible say? That's the question that you should ask. Why? Because that's the question Jesus asked. Why should you listen to him? Because Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. All of God's instruction, Jesus perfectly obeyed it and brought it to life. 
And then Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross and he gave his life for every time that you and I have not followed God's instructions in our life. And then Jesus rose from the dead. Hear me. Jesus rose from the dead. Okay? He rose from the dead. Do you know what that means? Jesus entered into eternal life. In the resurrection, Jesus brought heaven and earth together. He was bodily raised from the dead. He brought heaven and earth together. Heaven and earth intersect in the person of Jesus. When you follow God's instruction in your life, you will see heaven and earth intersect in your life. That's why you want to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have inspired a word that will last as long as life will continue. Lord, thank you. Thank you not just for speaking your word, but for coming and and doing it, for being the word of God made flesh. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us, for rising from the dead. Lord, you brought heaven to earth. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to experience heaven on earth. Lord, for those of us who struggle and feel like, man, we're not experiencing that right now, help us to go back to the beginning. Help us to go back to the Beatitudes and to be honest with you that we're poor in spirit. If you're here today and you're struggling because you don't have a relationship with Jesus or because it's been a long time since you've experienced any of the blessings of heaven in your life, then I'd invite you to pray Jesus' words. Be poor in spirit. Just come back to that place and say, Jesus, I am spiritually empty again. And I'm sorry. I'm mourning over the fact that I am not what I need to be. And I'm humbling myself so that you would fill me. Jesus, help us to understand your word. For so many of us that are trying to read the Bible every day for 30 days, Lord, continue to meet with us and make your word come alive so that we can see heaven, the salt and the light, so that we can see you and how we relate to you. Amen.